Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. So this is a a world first premiere. Um, Here we are in Killarney, County Kerry, the kingdom of Kerry is what it's called in Ireland, the kingdom. And uh, we're live streaming Gender A Wider Lens, Sasha. (laughs) We are very happy to be here along with our lovely uh, co-co-host today, Lisa Marciano. And um, it has been an, an absolute pleasure to be in the same room. I think this may be the first ever podcast recording where Stella and I are in the same place. Yeah. So I say we we need a round of applause for that. Um, And I think just we wanted to spend a minute just reflecting on how powerful it is to be together with you all here. Yes, woo <laughs> I know I have met some of my like heroes who helped me feel like I can say the things that I believe and advocate for the things I care about. So it's just a real honor to be in this room with so many amazing people and to just have these discussions both in the context of the, the talks and the panels and then like the dinners after and just like getting to know people on a personal basis. It's been an amazing couple of days. Yeah, it really has. I, I suppose so often you meet people on Zoom, and then when you meet them in real life, there's a, for especially for some people more than others, there's a, a 3D rearrangement. <laughs> and it, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's extraordinary, and it makes me less atheist when I meet people in real life, because it's like it's some heart or soul or something happens that just doesn't seem to happen over a screen. And it's happened so often in the last couple of days, just meeting somebody, giving them a hug, talking to them, seeing how they walk, seeing how mm-hmm. they stand. You, you, re, you, you, you know them better. And this has happened so many times. There's so many people I'd never met before, and yet I knew them very well, but I'd never actually met before, and now I know them. I feel even from a quick, because every conversation I had with everybody in the last few days has been very quick. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I feel like I know them better just from that, that hit, so it's been lovely. Well, I keep on thinking, um, oh, my God, she's so much more beautiful in person. So, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I I just want to say, you know, obviously I have concerns about social media and, and, uh, you know, how it's affecting the lives of young people. Clearly it can really have some downsides. But I've been reflecting on how many of you I met through Twitter. Right. So... So many of you I met initially on Twitter and now we're in the room together having these amazing conversations. So there's something really powerful about this platform as well. So, And what we're thinking about doing um, today for this very unusual um, episode, we're thinking of reflecting on some of the kind of interesting or thought-provoking topics that have been covered 
in the last couple of days because some topics very often in this world you start the conversation and then it moves on and you think god I have so much more to say about that Mm -hmm. so we thought we would delve into them yes so where shall we start Lisa uh, okay. You want me to go first? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that struck me this morning was I, I really enjoyed uh, Michael Biggs' talk and, and Ken's talk, and we were looking at the evidence and, and really thinking about this as sort of a medical and psychiatric and psychological issue. And then Stephanie Davies Arai came up, and she just looked at book after book after book. And it, there was like this collision in my brain that I think that those of us that are clinicians, we think about this as an individual phenomenon because we're we're used to treating individuals and, and thinking about it as a, a psychological issue. But it is so clearly a social phenomenon. And I think Stephanie's uh, uh, presentation really made that clear to me. And I just, I found myself just thinking about that. I, I, I think as clinicians and even as researchers, sometimes we... We don't uh, fully get how social this is. I remember Kathleen Stock making the point, which it, it was something I'd never really thought about before, is that the DSM, for example, doesn't say anything about um, the social contributions to, to psychological issues. And it just seems like maybe that's a bit of a blind spot in our profession. So yeah. I don't know what you guys have to say. I had the that. very same experience this morning. It's nodding along. I, lo- I really loved what Michael Biggs and Mackenzie. I was really interested. I was right in the middle of the clinical world. And then Stephanie came in and it was like, bang, whoa, a complete swerve from the conversation. And it was a whole new edition of, well, what about this? And it was kind of like it was highlighting oh my God, if you focus on the clinical, which was, you know, one of the ideas of having this conference was not to just focus on, not have silos, bring them all together. It was a really good example of the social just coming in strong on the clinical and kind of putting the clinical very clever analysis in its place because it's just one box in an understanding of gender. And it was like, oh, well, there you go. (laughs) It happened in real time for me this morning. I'm going to hide behind the uh, listeners who are not here because I missed Stephanie's talk this morning. But she was reading through books written for children, right, explaining to kids how they might be trans, just to clarify. Yes. So there were books uh, for young kids and there were books for teens. And and it was just book after book after book kind of normalizing this and, uh, you know, encouraging kids to explore their gender identity. And one of the things that um, came up for me is, you know, when someone walks into our consulting room, we meet that person as an individual and we often don't think about the social context. And, you know, one of the things that I've said to parents through the years is it's not good enough to find an agnostic therapist because a therapist who doesn't understand social contagion, for example, is eventually going to believe that they have a genuine unicorn in their consulting room. And and I, I can see how that's even true for me because it was it was such a it was such a revelation to to see these books just laid out one after another and to realize that when someone walks in your consulting room they're coming from this kind of intense social context mm-hmm. and then we got into that very very interesting debate about puberty blockers which I was really glad to put on because I, I wanted that to be teased out and um, it, it, again it was very interesting because this is how I remember it, probably badly, but 
you know, Michael Biggs made a very good case for anti-prohibition randomised control trials and I was nodding along and I was thinking me and Sasha because we're both therapists we tend to enter into the mm. space of whoever we're talking to and going yeah, in we go <laughs> we just go in and you know it's some sort of empathy <laughs> yeah but sometimes it can go against you because you can lose your critical judgement so you're I, I, I really I do think there's an awful lot to say about randomised control trials an awful lot to say that doesn't mean I, I agree with them but yeah <laughs> And uh, so I was nodding along and, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, prohibition doesn't work, prohibition doesn't work, I agree. And then um, Ken was saying his very clinical thing. And then Malcolm came in, like, very like Stephanie, like, bang, puberty could get you out of it. Puberty is the thing that will pull you out of it. And it might be for bad, it might be very, very difficult. But again, it felt like a, a kind of a sock in the jaw. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. to, the, to the clinical analysis. Mm -hmm. And something I've been reflecting a lot about lately is the power of the story we tell ourselves about our suffering. And I think Malcolm's story, and he gave a really personal anecdote earlier about his own experience as a young gay kid who felt picked on, who felt bullied, and his experience of puberty helped him develop the confidence and the strength to advocate for himself and stand up for himself and not feel so weak and powerless. And so, you know, Malcolm has this palpable story of his life that puberty helped get me out of this. And when we think about the books that Stephanie was looking at, we are giving children a story, not only that can never come true, but that what is coming for them is dangerous unless we use puberty blockers and these other interventions to stop it. So when we think about the way we teach children about what's coming, what to expect of themselves, what life has to offer, we often use story to help them understand these kind of esoteric things from life that they can't grasp yet. So the, the power of story is just huge. Um, and the detransition panel also was a great example of how the stories that these young people were told led them down a pathway that felt like there were no other options. And I, I'm really interested in how we can open up more stories so that people who are distressed this way might consider, for example, the social element, right? Like we hear all the time, kids can't become trans from YouTube. <laughs> well, the stories they tell themselves about why they're suffering can definitely be impacted by YouTube. Yeah, and I, I really think that, you know, stories got us into this. <laughs> stories will get us out of it. I do think, just to, to kind of further the point around prohibition and how to handle the, the very tricky c c conversation around puberty blockers, there is an argument, we all know prohibition is a, a very has a terrible past, really. It hasn't worked. We all know that there are very um, um, mercenary people who will make a lot of money selling puberty blockers online. We, we, there's no doubt about it. So they are accessible. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of power in a country saying, actually, until we have better evidence, we're not going to... It's not banning them. We're not going to prescribe them. You know what I mean? Like, as in, no, we're, we're, let me, if other people want to, but we're not going to because we're going to take a more cautious route until there's a better um, understanding of what it's like to have a gender dysphoric child. And just one, one further point on that, I think a public awareness campaign 
would get us a hell of a lot further around if there was an awareness of gender distress in a child does not mean a trans kid. If there was a, an actual campaign, we did it arguably maybe with Prozac that they were happy drugs and then everybody learned over a few years, oh, those are trickier than that. So that genie was out of the bottle and we were talking about what's called Accutane or something mm -hmm. and that was, you know, prescribed as, an, uh, you know, an anti-acne and then it had a huge kind of connections around deep, deep, um, emotional distress and that genie kind of got put in its place both of them are examples of social awareness a public awareness campaign so we don't have to pretend this is like whiskey we can actually mm. decide that you know they, they are they are they're not appropriate right now we don't know we don't know enough I guess it's pretty hard to get rid of whiskey in Ireland yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but talk about Talk about stories. I mean, you know, maybe the very best example for those of you who are from the States, at least, is, you know, there was this tremendous story in the early part of the 20th century that smoking was cool, that smoking showed that you were liberated, that smoking showed that you were sophisticated. I mean, in my lifetime, and I'm pretty old, but I've really seen smoking almost extinguished yeah. in American culture. And uh, uh, Ireland and mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I do think it's possible to at least partially get the genie back in the bottle, and it does depend on the story that we tell. And, and if we were to, uh, to definitively and authoritatively say that we, we don't believe that these medications are right for most people, and there were policies to back that up, I, I think we could roll this back. And I also think, you know, Helena asked, is Helena here? She, she asked the best question so far yeah. here. Well done, Helena, where are you? But she, she asked an amazing question, which was, is it along the lines of, you can correct me, but something like, is it ethical to pre prescribe something to a healthy person that can lead to infertility and, you know, anorgasmia and, uh, and other issues? And, you know, the, the, the panel um, an answered it. I don't know, is Ken Zucker here? Because it'd be lovely if he, if he did kind of take the opportunity to, to answer it. I don't think he is. Who's going to come in? Hmm. Because um, I would have loved to have heard what he said. And I think in the moment, sometimes you can pass on a question. And I'd love, you know, you know to kind of, when you've got four decades of uh, even your thoughts, even if you didn't have an answer, but to kind of hear the thoughts around that, because it was a very powerful question. Yeah. And, you know, the, that question always makes me think of the interview that Stella and I did with the Dutch researchers, which apparently is one of the only places where the Dutch researchers responded to critique, which I didn't know that going into it, but that's quite amazing. But uh, there, there seems to be a belief, and perhaps this is what the belief is at EPATH, which is that the alternative is worse, if we don't give these puberty blockers, something worse is going to happen. And so the, the risk of infertility, the risk of bone density issues, they pale in comparison to what might actually happen, which often is talked about like a suicide or something like that. So, you know, this conference, Stella, my understanding is you set this conference up in the same town as EPATH's conference to offer another voice to yeah. look at the bigger picture. And I'd love oh, to yeah. talk about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the big concept for me was that if, if 
doubly path and knee path won't listen to us. And in our experience, in Jen's experience, they, they wouldn't listen to us, that there, there was no response. We had, when we first set up in June 21, we did reach out. They had a, an online conference because it was during COVID. And, you know, they blocked us on Twitter. And we were never, we don't do, Genspec Twitter does not do rude. You know what I mean? We're very kind of polite, kind of invitation to speak and blocked. Sorry. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there you go. And um, so we thought we would be insistent and persistent and consistent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we would um, have a conference called The Bigger Picture. And the idea was we have an alternative understanding of the discussion that you're having. So it would be like, you know what I mean, if there was, a, I don't know, a Coca-Cola um, conference in town and we were like pear juice saying, you know, there's another drink you can have and it's a little <laughs> bit healthier and, you know, it's, it's probably more, lo- it takes longer to make and you won't make as much money. Mm. <laughs> however, <Wow>. however, <laughs> some people might be very interested in it. And um, yeah, we're determined to keep to it, to keep at it. Like I know that Epath wrote a letter to every attendee about two weeks ago about Genspect, and um, it, it, it was it was all it was flattering to be honest because they they um, clearly saw us as the rival group, <laughs> and that's what one of the, they said that, and they said. Um, that uh, they didn't see themselves in our description. We had described them as people who said the science is settled and that medicalised is, is the, um, you know, the most appropriate route for gender dysphoria. And they didn't recognise themselves in that description. And then today I, we, we, I, we received another letter from EPATH, which was kind of, they were very sad that we hadn't kind of, you know, applied to be part of it. And, you know, it felt kind of like a bridge was laid across the river with the letter, which I, I'd love I'd love if it was. I'd love if it was. You know, n- not because I'm desperate to get over to EPATH or WPATH, but I am desperate for us to, to, to lose this awful polarised left, right, you know. It feels very like the North in Ireland and I saw it for so many years and nobody thought the peace process was going to work. It's about 25 years old. It was celebrated a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Nobody thought that was going to work. Everybody gave out about it. The unionists gave out about it. The nationalists gave out about it. Every single person thought it was a disaster. Nobody thought it was good. And then we're 25 years peace. We had thousands died. Mm. So having seen that and grown up with that, you realise as... As much as you might see other crowds as the enemy, sometimes you've got to, for for the sake of the good, you've got to kind of get over it and kind of see how can we get to better solutions. So I, I, I was very pleased to get that letter and I don't know what I'll do with it, but I, I'm delighted some sort of discussion, dialogue is opening up. Yeah, I mean, there, there's got to be some common ground or some effort to find common ground. And, you know, Marcy Bauer sent this um, statement out and a lot of people were really upset about it. And I can understand why I read the statement. But one thing that I thought that Marcy Bauer's got right is, um, you know, it was noted that in these Republican states in the United States that are banning these treatments, they're not really interested in doing further research. And, and there is some animus, I think, in these bills. And I'm not sure that that really helps anything. I personally uh, would agree with Marcy Bowers there. 
Oh, sorry, I was getting distracted with the time. Marcy Bowers, go on, Sasha. <laughs> Take it away. Well, I haven't, I haven't read the Marcy Bowers letter, but I do think, I do think it's necessary for us to build bridges. And, and at least one of the reasons I think that's important is because every now and then we hear about a WPATH clinician who has a dissenting question or a dissenting opinion, and sometimes those clinicians get ostracized from their own organization. Oh, yeah. So I would suspect that if we were able to come together and some of the presentations that you all got to see here in the last few days were presented for the broader audience, there might be a few people in that audience who actually really resonate with what we're saying. So just in the way that, you know, social pressure can create a lot of silence and fear, that's probably happening in a lot of different contexts. And so I think giving people the opportunity to hear robust debates where people don't necessarily agree, we have different views on puberty blockers or some of these kind of specific protocols, is, is a way to say, in our organizations, we believe in freedom of discussion, yeah. whereas I know Clinicians have come from WPATH and EPATH and said, it feels really stifled and I don't feel like I can speak honestly. You know, Sue was giving that great presentation earlier today and she was talking about how there's this kind of dead feeling in the room with these kids who've oh, kind yeah. of split off parts. And and I loved what she said. I don't know if she's here, but she said, you know, I try to bring curiosity alive. And I was thinking there's a real parallel process there because I think that that um, that clinicians can have that same experience of splitting off things they don't want to know about and then it can feel very dead. And it seems to me I was thinking that maybe all of our jobs should be trying to wake up curiosity. And if, if we all of us can be curious, both over across town and also here, I mean, you know, there's there's something to be said for humility. I don't think I know everything about this topic. I know I don't. And, uh, you know, maybe there's some things I could learn that would surprise me. Mm -hmm. I'd say so. I'd love, before we move on, because we've more subjects, I'd love anybody who wants to make a comment on the puberty blockers, because it was a really, I thought it was really good, but it was also controversial. And we wanted to be controversial. We wanted to knock ourselves out of, because I've gone to a lot of conferences and we're all cheering everybody and everybody's great. And it's nice to have a little bit of, oh, I'm not sure if I disagree, because it's good for the brain. So put your hand up and we might, uh, great, Helen, Helen can start us off. Joe, Helen right has there. a question. <laughs> So something that I've thought about a lot, and I know a lot of other people have noticed too, is that one of the reasons we've got to hear is that doctors and clinicians look just at the patient in front of them and they make a decision for that patient and often that decision has a social impact. So for 50 years, doctors have been saying, go into women's spaces and see if they kick you out or scream oh, yeah. and use that as a diagnostic tool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, suddenly we have men in women's spaces. And now I think it's the same with the puberty blockers and even the Hillary Cass report because they're looking at the individual child, but that individual child goes to school and whatever decision the doctor makes, there's this built-in assumption that the school has to go along with it. And I think that everybody who deals with individual patients has to start thinking, how is this individual patient going to move around in the world and not destroy other people's rights? I'd like to hear you comment on that. Uh, I'm happy to start. This is such an important point, Helen, because... You know, we have critiqued the affirmative model, and we did so in a pretty in-depth episode recently. And what's built into the affirmative therapy model for gender dysphoria is, is a, almost a, 
an invitation to put up barriers in your life if people are not accepting you. And that's why we see such a challenge with family estrangement, kids who are cutting off their parents and basically uh, insisting that teachers use their pronouns. And of course, school administration is often on board with that too. So this is a really important point because I think effective therapy actually should help the individual function in all contexts, right? Good therapy helps you have more options, more places you can go, more people you can be friends with. So that's why I think the affirmative model of care is so anti-therapeutic. It's really anti-functional because you cannot function in the world if you have to cut off everyone who doesn't go along, and like you said, with schools as well. Yeah, I think one of the, I think you make a very good point because people are doing each each kind of, let's say there's one child in the school who um, has been put on puberty blockers and the school policy changes mindlessly a little bit, certainly a little bit cluelessly, and then the policy is set forevermore. So another child who was not on puberty blockers but is, is kind of playing around with social transition has gone into that stream. And that has happened again and again and again. And that's why our, our work with schools has been probably the most frightening and certainly the most valuable I felt for, for Genspec because it's when you speak to staff, you realise all you have to do is remind them of their training, of their knowledge of children, of their knowledge of how kind of teenagers can lose themselves and get intense. And they, they know it all. They, they know Most teachers know it. There's always just one or two, I would argue, strongly affirmative, different countries, different places, but certainly one or two strongly affirmative who create it and then everybody else follows. Very like the pronoun thing, very like so many other things, people are following it out of awkwardness, social awkwardness of not knowing whether they should push back. And I'm hoping something like today and something like us talking about it will remind us that we have to actually use our voice and say, sorry, what's, what's going on here? It's awkward, but I think it's essential. Yeah, I mean, um, you you both make such good points, and I'm I'm remembering that Stephen Levine wrote this paper. It was a while ago; it must have been maybe 2015, 2016, where he talked about exactly this thing that we have oh, to remember that people operate in a social context, and they they have families, and that these decisions that are made. Helen, as you're saying, sort of on an individual basis, which might make sense if you if the person had no social context, might really not work when you're thinking about families and schools and social life and potential partners. And, you know, as you were saying, Sasha, that's really important to think about how the person functions overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Any other questions before we move on to the next? Oh, Terry or this guy? Yeah, Terry and maybe Terry. Yeah, Terry's excited. <laughs> and then after that, you. I just wanted to comment on the whole idea that we can't um, bring in prohibition for puberty blockers. Um, you can't make a comparison really with things like whiskey or cigarettes because those are things that are carried out by adults mm. who choose to do them uh, for recreational purposes. Yes, there are many downsides, but they are chosen for adults for recreational purposes all around the world in massive numbers. Puberty blockers, I think you need to make the comparison more with other kinds of requests made to doctors for things that patients would like to have, but that we know are bad for them. We don't have doctors prescribing benzodiazepines en masse like we used to. 
even though many people would very much like that. And we're talking about children, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I know that the argument that was made was that, well, if we don't prescribe them, they'll get them on the black market, they'll get them from, you know, gender GP or other places. Well, so be it. Mm-hmm. So be it. At least there'll be less people getting them. Mm-hmm. And more's the point, it's about the message that we're giving. If the medical complex are prescribing these things legally and so-called with research behind them, that's the message that we're giving to young people mm-hmm. and parents, that these are thought-through, well-researched medical treatments. Um, that's just really not the message we need to be giving. And I think if we were to be able to stop prescribing them uh, with good research evidence given out as to reasons why, and then try and control them on the black market, mm-hmm. that would be at least a way of stopping them being given en masse to hundreds of thousands of people uh, with really bad consequences for those people. Uh, in a world that, I, uh, that, we're, that is very heightened and I'm always in fear of being misrepresented and stuff, I hope I didn't give the message that I, we, we can't, we, some sort of we can't deal with them because of prohibition or some sort of anti-prohibition. I do think that puberty blockers shouldn't be prescribed. I think they block a sexual awakening. The sexual awakening could be quite likely if they can get through it with enough support, the very thing that will bring them out of it. Obviously, from my own experience, I'm very biased. But um, I, sometimes there is, there is wisdom in your own experience, so I, I, I agree. Well, and can I just say a little bit more about puberty blockers too? Because we brought up the Helena question. You weren't in the room, but we were <laughs> going back to your question. And, you know, I, I think one of you, one of you said it, but, um, th- you know, if you're going to expose particularly a child to a treatment that has really serious consequences, you, you know, on the other side, what the evidence is if you don't do it. For example, a, a, a treatment for cancer that might render the child infertile or, you know, God forbid, something awful like that. But on the other side, you know, as my husband, the doctor said, there's a pathology report mm-hmm. that says this, these, this is the cells you have growing in your body. We can, we can look at this and definitively say that if you don't undergo this treatment, you're going to have these horrible consequences. We just don't have that evidence. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the clear answer to Helena's question is, can we can we be messing with children's bodies in this way without a really strong evidence base? I I think that's pretty clear. And I, I want to say also, and, and Terry, maybe this is relevant to your point, is, you know, and Michael Biggs referenced this, the treatment in some sense creates the illness because we have the possibility of doing this, it then creates this illness where it needs to be done. And I think we have to be aware of that. Yeah. I know you have a question. Yeah. And then we'll move on to the the next part of the conference that we were in. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to come back to uh, the fact that WPATH blocked you guys. And on the other hand, nowadays, uh, they complain that you guys didn't apply uh, with um, your talks over there on the other side of the road. And so I'm curious, did they unblock you already? And I'm really grateful that they talk now. I'm totally on the side of we should talk and have bridges. Yeah. Um, I haven't checked. (laughs) Um, I think I I will. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I would love... If coming out of this dialogue started, even 
even if it got nowhere, even if we decided there was, you know, what is it, irreconcilable differences, I still think we would be making a big step psychologically that, that we need dialogue between groups and we need to get somewhere. And honestly, there's a lot of people in EPAT that I've no doubt, well, we know, would, who are very unhappy with how it's been taken over by activists and that's what it seems to be when you look at the standards of care with their inclusion of a eunuch chapter on eunuchs and a chapter on, on non-binary and no chapter on detransition that I, I, I think they know in many ways there's some people in there who know they've lost their way so but anyway no I haven't checked Colin has a question yeah so my question is given what we know about desistance rates for people who, for kids who aren't put on puberty blockers, given what we know about the fact that, you know, the suicide rates are not what they claim. It's not 40%. It's not different than kids with similar types of mental health issues that don't include dysphoria. What would the evidence, you know, I'm, I'm all for gathering evidence and things like that and doing random control trials, but I, I, I fail to like see what the evidence would have mm -hmm. to look like mm -hmm. for me to say, Okay, yeah, let's start mm -hmm. blocking all their puberties. Like, wh what yeah. would it need to look like for this to be like to change our minds about whether question. we should do this? That is, that's a doozy, <laughs> Colin. <Yeah. laughs> I I can't conceive. I'd be interested if anybody wants to give a go at what that would be because it's a yeah. I I'm not sure. I've thought about it. Oh, yeah, go I've on. Thought about it because um, Megan Phelps Roper asked that question in the final episode of um, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And I was like, what evidence would it take mm. for me to change my mind? And I'm, I'm telling you, it's a pretty high bar. Okay, go on. Uh, for one thing, I think I'd have to have a really biologically plausible explanation for why people uh, need to live as the opposite sex. So, you know, you know, that that maybe that there was evidence for an innate gender identity that could be somehow that was not unfalsifiable. And then I, I think I'd need to see really good long term outcome studies that, you know, maybe maybe, you know, double blind controlled studies to show that people actually did better in the long term. Because, I mean, again, going back to the point that Helena raised you're damaging people's bodies. Yeah. So you would need to convince me that, um, that that damage was outweighed by some other outcome. Yeah. Well, this question for me raises, raises the issue of what happens when our lives get so deeply integrated with technological solutions? It's like once you have the possibility of blocking puberty it opens up the doors for making puberty blockers almost this like inextricable pathway that we offer to kids with dysphoria. For me, the fact that we have a well-documented history of desistance between 60 and 90% tells me that we have a possible story about what dysphoria means and it could resolve. And frankly, one of the things that we've you know investigated over the years is that all of the justifications for going to a medical pathway are based on really flimsy theories that therapy can't work. Therapy oh, yeah. cannot be effective. And I would like to say, I don't think that's true. I think therapy can be effective and I've seen it be effective. It's probably not 100% effective in every case, but I think without really giving it a shot to truly prepare and educate clinicians on how to do this robust work, 
then there's no evidence that you can show me, I think, that, that puberty blockers are appropriate. Yeah, that's a very good point. I do think that, that I was provoked to think when, um, I, certainly Ken Zucker said it a lot, and I think Michael Big said it, it was along the lines of, for some people, therapy is going, there isn't insight to work with if you follow me, what, what do we do with that fact? Because they're there and they're coming into clinicians and they want to transition. And what do we do with this cohort who thera therapeutic insight or, or, or mental insight, they're, they're not operating on that level. I'm not saying mm -hmm. what to do. I don't know what to do, but I do think that's a, a thorny issue that we have to kind of grapple with because when they come in, you know, because there's certain different types of clients you can have, you know, I mean, in therapy. And sometimes you're really in a very different space with one person than you might be with another person just because of their way of thinking and their way of operating. So that certainly did give me pause. But I did want to move on because there was a few things. So can can yeah. I say one more thing? Yeah. yeah. OK, um, I think <laughs> yes, I think Richie said it. Uh. Like, I think it's, it's, it's the fact that this is a possibility that clients get so fixated. Yeah. So like as a therapist or a, th a therapist from any generation know that sometimes you'll have clients come in who are very rigid in their thinking, but what they're rigid about and what they're obsessing over is very different in our current cultural landscape yeah. when everybody on the planet is telling them what you're fixated on is exactly how to become your authentic self. Yeah. Like the cultural context, I think, makes a huge difference. So I totally agree. There are some rigid clients that may not be great therapy candidates in terms of what are we doing one-on-one -on -one together. But at least if the rest of society's infrastructures are keeping them safe, it's a lot less hard for us to do our jobs. And Which goes back to what Terry was saying. Yeah. Yeah. And Almost every kid or trans person or detransitioner I met will always say at the beginning, I saw somebody who transitioned. Whether it was in real life or was online, they saw somebody and something, something just opens. It's mm. unbelievable mm -hmm. just how often they say that. I saw somebody and then I, off I go. So there is something about the, the social context. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, GenSpect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. But yeah, there was lots of things in, in the conference that really got us exci excited, <laughs> but I'm certainly engaged. And the D-Trans panel, I thought, was very, very powerful. I thought there was, yeah. yeah. Just hearing the different stories, like you said, it, mm -hmm. it was just so powerful, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of themes there that I think I'd like to lift up. I'd like to start with um, 
I hope it's okay just to kind of refresh the audience's memory. Jet is a young woman who was seen by the Dutch clinicians, the clinicians who, uh, you know, pioneered this entire process of blocking puberty. And she described, I think, becoming aware of gender identity at like 15, uh, maybe 14, going to see the clinicians at 15, 16, getting on puberty blockers. There's Jet. And yeah. 17, starting testosterone. And then 18, as far as I remember, mistaked yeah. me and yeah. went on to hysterectomy. Yeah. And the, the most powerful part of Jet's story for me was... No, no, no hysterectomy. Sorry. Hmm. Yeah. She canceled it. Did oh, you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Je- the, the most powerful part of your story for me was hearing you talk about this disconnect between what you knew was happening in your intimate life and your body. So Jet talked about having her puberty blocked, not having the natural sexual response, knowing she was in love with somebody, knowing that she really cared for this girl, but not being able to connect with her desire for intimacy. And then describing when her body started to heal, when she got off of these drugs, it kind of came in in this natural way. And it's like we talk about these drugs and we talk about the bone complications and like these things can feel really far down the line. But when you think about the immediacy of being a young person, trying to build relationships, trying to connect, and this very fundamental part of your adolescence has been taken from you, it was just so powerful. And I think like that's a real story that goes beyond just like the data and the numbers and the statistics. And then... I was reminded by how little we know where the equivalent it feels like of, you know, when the doctors were putting leeches on, on us in, in our knowledge of, of gender issues. Because the, the, the kind of the report, which I've heard from other people, of having testosterone made her um, effectively attracted to males when actually she'd been born with an attraction, aren't born with whatever, but had some sort of kind of instinctive biological attraction to females, but the addition of testosterone made her attracted. That was so interesting. It's like, what does testosterone do? It's, oh my God. It just was such a shocking, and I've heard it a few times, so every time I hear it, I think, hang on, we don't, there's there's so much to that. Mm -hmm. There's so much to that sentence. Because, and then stopping it, and then reawakening the natural biological impulse towards females. There's, there's, a, there's like, a, you know, a thesis in that. Well, you're saying that it's like when uh, physicians use leeches, but, but there's a way that we're ignoring what we do know. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not just that we don't know. It's that it seems to me like some of this stuff is just kind of common sense, right? That you what shouldn't... That noise? Keep going. We <laughs> plug along. <laughs> that it's um, that that you know why would we think that it's acceptable to mess with a young person's endocrine system? Uh, if it's okay, I'd like to lift up a, a really interesting tension that I experienced during the detrans panel. Um, detransitioners. Well, first of all, even the term detransitioner, I am aware, is complicated. But individuals who are going through the medical process and stopped and are re-identifying with their birth sex, we're talking about how complicated it is to be 
in a way put on display because of the things that have happened to you. And um, realizing that your story is important, you know, they, they often feel incredible sense of distrust for the medical community and what they have been through. So they want to use their stories to bring awareness to this. But also, it's so limiting when journalists and the media kind of talk about the detransition story as just like this discarded, you know, remnants of a medical scandal and, you know, saying things like, you've ruined your life, haven't you? Things like that. Yeah. And I, I, I've thought about that so much over the last few years. And I think it's, it just raises questions for me about like, how do we as people who we're not detransitioners, we're not trans, we are not like really part of that, we're clinicians, but how do we responsibly give voice to the detransition experience while also being mindful that these are young adults who have just been through like an absolute roller coaster and they need to heal too. And, and I, I wonder about other medical scandals like the opioid epidemic or things like that. You know, are there best practices on how to responsibly highlight stories of, of individuals who are really important? Like it's important for us to understand that there has been damage and distrust, but not to kind of box people in. And I don't really have an answer. I'm just, yeah. it's really interesting. Well, well there is precedence insofar as like in 1989, there was a convention about how do we report on suicide? And with that, they came out with ethical guidelines on reporting on suicide. And as a result, um, the, when Kurt Cobain died by suicide, it was about 92. It wasn't long after that. So they were kind of, it was their first big opportunity to say, OK, let's, let's ethically report on this. And it was a very big success that there wasn't a massive contagion. And we've slipped massively since the, you know, advent of social media, because up until then they kept it. They had an ethical kind of stance around suicide, how to report on it, how to write about it. We have a good precedence about how to do this. Then social media came along and they have really wrecked the reporting of suicide. It's become very glamorised. They've made a mess of it. Yeah. And Robin Williams' death... Um, some years ago was a really good example of how badly we've lost our way because there was so much social contagion as a result of his death. So we have something to look to and we, we can, it could be done, a protocol could be, there could be a convention around it and there could be a protocol about how to report on detransition, you know, how to, how to write about it. We wonder, is there anybody who has questions, reflective questions as we come to the end? Or points to make, maybe, about any... Not necessarily, but, yeah, I'll catch you. Carrie, over here. Um, uh, we'll get Carrie, because I called her, yeah. <laughs> and we'll get other people. Um, and also about the conference, any other points, because we're coming towards the end, so any other points you might want to make? You know, I, I think about it as these are almost victims of, like, gender overdose, and that if sort of the Alcoholics Anonymous type model is a and way just say who you it. are just oh. so yeah Carrie Mendoza I'm an emergency medicine physician in the states and I'm with fair and medicine yeah just thinking about it from you know what happened with alcoholics where they tried to do prohibition and then alcoholics anonymous is very successful but just sort of a support group and thinking about this as people who are sucked into sort of a, a an addiction model and then once they're out, it's 
you know, they need support. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. just wondering if you've thought about it. That well, I, I thought Richie's point about in recovery was, was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I really did. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it, it kind of takes your point and goes with it. I think it's a really yeah. good way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, maybe Maya, because you're beside her. Um, I, I wanted to pick up on a point that Stephanie made about how it's different for boys and girls it's different for men and women um and we've been apply you know we apply the equality framework to this and think think it's the same for men and women or i mean we don't but it it gets applied and i I was thinking about the thing that you said stella in your session about therapy where you were saying you know you can apply the normal techniques of therapy you can get people to reconcile with who they are and widen their scope of gender and you said you know you can be a masculine woman and you can be a masculine woman but you can be a man who wears a dress to work is quite different from being a masculine woman um and i just i sort of wanted to push that back to you and say you know uh-huh. what do we say is it you can be a weekend crossdresser you know what is it that you're offering to and and the other the word that has not come up this weekend very much at all is autogynephilia. Oh, it's so coming I just, up tomorrow. I just wanted to say it. <laughs> well, uh, Joe beside you will be doing... Can I, first of all, there's loads... I, I have to. I shouldn't take over, but I just will say a couple of things. Joe is doing... I'm happy to let you take this one. <laughs> Joe is doing um, what I think will be a very exciting um, talk, presentation on autogynephilia tomorrow. So we, we haven't missed that. Um... It is a tricky point because I do think we should live in a world where people are free to wear dresses, whether they're male or female. I do think that some people, and I'm not one of them, and I've met them, they just love flounces and jewellery and satin and all this stuff that I, I have no interest in. But they do, I see it in them, that they just love the bits. Then you think, OK, that's fair enough, off you just go, wear your dress if you want. I'm going somewhere. But then there are some people who who have an erotic fixation and they're enjoying not only wearing it, but they're in the middle of an erotic act as they're wearing it. Now, again, I'll go back to my public awareness that we need to have public awareness around that. People don't know what it is. They don't know they're part of a public. They don't know they're part of an erotic act. You know, I was talking to a woman. It was one of those school talks. And uh, this woman came up to me and she described this guy. And I told her, she just described this person in her life and she kind of didn't know what to do with it. Very positive about it all. But clearly something was kind of, there was sex somewhere in the air, if you follow me. And then I described what autogynophilia was and she was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Like she realised. Had to do that to her. Well, she realised she had inadvertently been part of a sex act week upon week, year, year for a long time and didn't re- but knew something funny was going. So my, my grand card of, of public awareness, if people knew it, I think, no, I know this isn't a good answer. I know it's not a very well-developed answer, but something around that, that people would start to see the difference of, hang on, that's a sex act. That's somebody enjoying um, skirts. Because there are two different types of people who, who seem to enjoy skirts. <laughs> Anybody, nobody else. Um, so this side of the room. Yeah, well, yeah. Somebody else pick. Maybe Jesse. And make sure you say where you're from, Jesse. Yeah. Jesse Minnesota. Yeah. Yes, Jesse Manisto from Third Factor Magazine. 
And I just want to say how wonderful this conference has been, meeting people in person and feeling that, you know, you're not just fake people on the screen, that we really have each other's backs. We're real. And there's so many. And I want your listeners to know that they're not alone either. And I find myself. Yeah. And I know when I get back to the States, which I know is not the ideal place uh, for dealing with this right now, but I want to do something because I see hope. I see more normies seeing what's happening and seeing something doesn't smell right. But I also hear what you say about WPATH maybe being willing to build some bridges. So Mm. we are, most of us don't have platforms, but we could do something. You guys have done things. You organize this conference. What advice do you have for us? What could we do? What could we take home? Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I wish I knew. (laughs) But yeah, I I love that you're inspired to do this. And we all know what we can do. We can run talks. We can have talks. We can have conferences. Doing exactly what we have and pushing back the pronouns, you know, doing the things that Maya and Helen said. But jump in, yeah. I want to point out something that we've often joked about in the last, I don't know how many years of working in this world. There's a lot of reinventing the wheel that happens. And I think partially because of what you're saying, like we all live on screens. We are on these kind of isolated silos where like, if you don't happen to be Twitter friends with somebody, they might've started some amazing organization that you don't know about. Very similar to your own. Yeah. So I would say, let's build a lot of bridges, find out what other um, programs and projects are happening. And if you feel like you can lend your talents to something that already exists, most of these organizations need help. They need people. They need volunteers. They need support. They need writers. So I think there's already a lot of amazing stuff going on, but we just have to slot people in where they fit. And on that subject, I should have said, you could volunteer for Chensman. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I I just want to say to that too, though, that I, I think we can all be braver about conversations just even in our personal lives. And I know that I am at the point where where I cannot, (laughs) I can't help it. So I was, I was uh, walking, took a walk with a friend I hadn't seen in a million years and, um, and it came up and I was like, am I going to say, am I going to say, oh yeah. And then I just couldn't, I just couldn't help myself. I said, I have a real problem with this. And I didn't know what she was going to say. And she said, oh, I'm so glad you said that. And she was really relieved. And I just find that that is true again and again and again. So I would encourage you to have courage when it comes up, speak about it with confidence and and compassion. Um, But let's get rid of this idea that we can't say that the emperor's not wearing any clothes. And one more thing, as you're fine, Keats, yeah, Yeah. just one one second before. Mm -hmm. And another thing we can do, just taking up on the point, the the reinventing of the wheel is a real issue among us. And I think collaboration between organisations is really productive, really helpful, and I think it works very well. So I think we should be all collaborating with different organisations. We're here, but, you know, we have a lot in common. So I'm very, very into the spirit of collaboration. Hi. uh, Thank you. Uh, Keith Jordan from Mail Duty again. Um, I just want to pick up on something that um, uh, Sasha said earlier, which um, is actually really, really important. I want to double it up and make sure everybody takes notice of it, which is the ambition and the high expectations that you set for therapists to, to... that. 
whatever it is, 12 or 13% that we can't get to desist at the moment. Yeah, I think it's the job of therapists to have a look at that and say, can we do better? Which I think is my interpretation of what you said. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Um, <laughs> I was talking about desistance rates, right? Yeah. Is that what you're yeah, referring yeah, absolutely. to? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm well, I'm talking about the literature we have historically, right? Um, and really, there has not been a robust effort from the clinical side to develop therapeutic guidelines on how to work with people who are questioning their gender. Really, the only interventions that have been proposed have largely been social transition and medical intervention. So, I mean, we are all part of an organization called GEDA, the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association, and we've been working to develop a set of clinical guidelines which are available now, and we're providing trainings for therapists, and we're really, we, we know there's also thoughtful therapists here. There are several organizations of clinicians who are developing protocols on how to work with this population, because really that's novel. Joe's also part of GETA. So um, I, don't, I don't know that we will have success with everybody. I also think, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that transition is a life strategy, and it may not be adaptive if a person believes it's their only strategy and it's that or the end of their life. But I think individuals need to be fully informed that that is one option out of many other options. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yep. good point. I know Lisa wants to have a question. And also, I think, Robin, did you have your hand up? And then maybe Malcolm. Where am I going? Over to Lisa. Thank you. At the risk of... Um, so Lisa Sellen-Davis. Lisa Sellen-Davis. Um, yeah, at the, at the risk of getting rid of all journalistic integrity, I just want to profess my love for all three of you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and I just want to go back a couple of questions ago because I, I'm really, I'm not really asking a question. I'm making a comment. But as someone who went to this conference and to EPATH, I want to tell everyone here that it was very surprising to me um, in a good way what was happening there um, in that there was an acknowledgement of a new demographic, even though they were explaining it away. Um, they knew they knew that the demographic had changed. There was an acknowledgement of the low quality evidence. There was an acknowledgement of detransition, and um, there's a lot more I can and will say about that at another time. But that I do feel that that the moment to come together is is sooner than we may have thought, and as someone who seems to have dedicated my life to that kind of making that happen. Um, I also wanted to just highlight uh, the brief theme that Ken Zucker brought up of, of uh, radical centrism. And even though like I'm a Bernie bro and raised hardcore feminist, socialist, et cetera, uh, I find myself due to the extremity on both sides becoming a radical centrist and I think the vast majority of people have moderate views, but as we all know, in this social media age, the most extreme views are what we're hearing. So I, I just want to make another plug for building bridges, and I mean that in, in every arena because journalists lost their curiosity, the therapists lost their curiosity, the doctors lost their curiosity. We all have similar jobs. Um, 
and and partly that means talking to the journalists from different sides. It means not closing people off because you perceive them as your enemy. Um, and I actually am coming out of this experience a little bit hopeful that progress can be made and we can actually think about what's the best thing to do for these kids. Oh. So it's it's wonderful that you had this event because I think they listened and I think they're almost ready and hopefully people here can also be ready and welcoming. And there were several people from the conference that came. So Yeah, that's great. Everyone great. should feel happy about that. Malcolm and then Malcolm? Yeah, maybe Malcolm. Was Mal our, Yeah, Laura. Or Malcolm. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Yeah, could do it together, a duo. I mean, it was a very quick point just to, to say for, for, for people who are especially Americans living in the land of Biden and Dylan Mulvaney <laughs> that, um, I mean, I'm from Scotland and, um, you know, it, I think when things change, it's going to happen really quickly. Mm. And you look at Scotland, you know, three years ago, in January 2020, LGB Alliance had a meeting in Scotland and we were opposing the Gender Recognition Act and Nicola Sturgeon, who was our first minister, was every bit as woke as Joe Biden and they were bringing in the hate crime bill, they were redefining same sex as same gender, They were there was the high tide of gender identity in Scotland and three years later Nicola Sturgeon is gone, they can't get their bill through Mm. Uh, you know, Isla yeah. Bryson opened the eyes of the public. And I think we, we said then three years ago, if the public just have given, uh, they're given the chance to see what's happening, they're on our side. I mean, forget WPATH and EPATH, mm -hmm. the vast majority of Americans, of Canadians and everyone else actually agree with us. Mm -hmm. We just have to give them time mm -hmm. to get up to speed. Mm -hmm. All we ever needed okay. was a public vote. Yeah. All right. So first of all, yeah. So first of all, I just okay. So first of all, I just wanted to say, let's give a round of applause to Genspect. Okay, Stella O'Malley, Stella O'Malley, right here, the OG. Stella O'Malley, Sasha, Joe, Joe Burgo, everybody here at Genspect that's done all this work. Well, it's you. a lot of bullshit. It's a lot of stress. Okay, yeah. we're grateful for it. We're grateful for it, but I hope it's rewarding. So, <laughs> but really, I don't, I don't want to be annoying, but I want to say, what are your intentions for the future? After, I'm sure you haven't had any time to think about this, but just putting on the spot intuitively, what, what are your intentions for the future? What would you most like to see as an outcome from this conference in the larger scale and spectrum of things? I would like the public to finally understand that gay is not, or being trans is not the same as being gay. And if we could just get that lesson over, just that, then everybody will suddenly sit back and say, well, then what is trans? Mm -hmm. And if we can just get that point out, if nothing else, if we can just get that point across... I think it would be the the one. I think it would if we can just separate that. And I think it's coming. And I think it's just constantly laborious conversations. I do think we've never been very good as a movement with slogans and branding. And we have these long-winded points to make. And, um, you know, finally our long-winded points are being listened to. 
but yeah, that, that's that's what I would love to get out. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I think is there a question at the end? We're coming towards the end now, aren't we? Yeah. Look at this gentleman. A question. Adrian, and then Adrian. Hi, thanks so much. Um, my name's Ben. I'm a um, consultant in the National Health Service, um, but not this is not my area, so um, I'm very much here in a learning capacity. Um, none of this is my fault. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hello, Ben. Um, so... Um, I guess my my question is the um, I, I think one of the biggest questions facing the medical world over well already for the last two decades but for the next two decades is medical science has come on so much there's so much that we can do but I think the massive question is what should we do and also what should we not do mm-hmm. and I don't think that's just in the area of gender and sexuality I think it's it's in it's across the board in terms of what actually should we do. And so my question um, to, to you guys, and because I'm, again, here to learn, is is where are the medical ethicists in this whole conversation? That is a great question yeah. um, that I have and, wondered many times. Yeah, and because, um, you know, I think uh, the question was asked earlier by, by the lady, wasn't it? Like, is it ethical to give that? And I think that's exactly it. Like, is it ethical? And are people actually saying this in the medical um, community and if not why not and can we do anything either personally or as organizations to reach out to them and to have conversations wow yeah i i i think that's a great question and i i i tried in the early days tried to like pigeonhole this medical ethicist that I knew personally. And I, I think she thought I was like Alistair's crazy person at the bus stop. So it didn't really go over too well, but, um, yeah, I think it, this is clearly in the realm of medical ethics. So, yeah, I think we'll take one question from Adrian and then and we then will maybe one from Wesley Young and then we're okay. finished. Okay. That is it. Hopefully this will be very quick. Um, I'm Adrian. My uh, online it might be Adrian Luis Sanchez from LGB Alliance USA. And when the Pioneer series hit, it kind of hit like a like a wave. It was beautiful. And I'm one question is one: Are you going to do something similar in the future? And two: Did you know what you had accomplished in the Steensma DeVries interview? Because when that happened, I remember I was driving. <laughs> And it hit me so hard. And I'm hoping that you uh, have something to say about your own experience in the room as you asked the questions. And they responded to the change in the gender slash sex markers between A and B from pre and post. Um, yeah, I think we did know that something very big was happening. We, we, I certainly, I never prepared for an episode more than I prepared for that episode. I reached out to people. I asked different people, you know, different questions. I was talking to, you know, the clever ones over in Sagam, mm-hmm. <laughs> asking different things. So, yeah, I, I knew that this was a, a one-off opportunity. I didn't think we'd get a second opportunity. And it felt... And we didn't. <laughs> did not. You, you, don't, you don't think they're going to come back? No. <laughs> and um, it felt incredi- incredibly important to get it right. And yet not badger so that it became closed. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like just trying to open up the conversation. I remember afterwards I was utterly exhausted. I do remember just feeling like I've been hit with a rock. And I know, you know, we we reflected on it after. And I'm very keen to hear what Sash said. But like I remember we both felt really shook 
Yeah. Really shook. I, I felt really distressed mm-hmm. on quite a deep level. Mm-hmm. There was a clinical coldness that I felt incredibly unsettling. And I felt, I felt I'd kind of seen something that I've read about in history books, a kind of, oh, wow. It was very laboratory or something vibe out of it. And it stuck with me that night because we, we, we were having it a bit later. It was about six or seven that evening. And that night, like tossing around and just trying to explain what I, we'd been through mm-hmm. before it went out, let's say to my husband or whatever. It's like something. Something crazy went on there, you know, so that's how I felt. Yeah. Our ratings for that episode are about to skyrocket. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, I mean, these were the clinicians who developed the Dutch protocol. I mean, they must have so ardently believed in what they were doing. And even with our, our questions, like, it was obvious that they did not understand what we were so worried about. Mm. And I think that disconnect between... Uh, like seeing what happens to these kids on the ground when they are put through these medical treatments and then seeing the very kind of casual way that the clinicians were talking about it definitely left me with a lot of complicated feelings. I also felt really um, exhausted. I knew it was an important interview, but I have to be honest, Adrian, I, I had not, for example, gone and read every interview with Steensman DeVries. So I wasn't aware of whether or not they had been interviewed in such a way before. I kind of assumed that we were one of many, you know, people who had asked them hard questions about their treatments. And apparently we were... The and only there was a two, foot, like, there was a foot. not the only two, but in that public of a setting. So it was really actually interesting to hear, you know, you shared that feedback with me and other people have said that interview was amazing. And I don't think I realized that degree of it. I, there was a funny moment about 10 minutes into it where I suddenly thought, they don't know who we are. Yeah. <laughs> Now they yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, that, that was very exciting. <laughs> Have we a uh, last question with Wesley, I think, and then we're going to close it up and we'll go to the bar. So there are many reasons for great uh, optimism and many reasons for great pessimism on this issue that are happening simultaneously. And I wonder which of them uh, are... Uh, what is your perception of some reasons for optimism and pessimism and uh, taking them all into account on net? How do you feel about this issue? Um, Just to cite one issue of a cause for pessimism, um, about a month ago, um, a trans-identified female, uh, you know, uh, mass-murdered six people, including three children. And a few days after that, the um, spokesperson for the president of the United States uh, made the following statement that these, you know, these trans people, they are, um, you know, they're they're facing a, uh, you know, a right-wing backlash they uh, they fight back, and we have their back. So that was a statement that was oh. made uh, three days after um, that event. So I chalk that up as a, as a cause of pessimism. It suggests that, as the, the administration has made clear, that nothing is going to deter them from this path and that they will pursue it at any cost. Um, but there are also all of these causes for optimism happening at the same time. So I wonder how you sort of parse them out and and uh, weigh them against each other? Well, I'm an optimist. 
And um, what I will say is uh, someone once wrote on Twitter, and I won't forget this. I don't know who it was. I think it was an anonymous account. But this person said, you have a really powerful ally, the truth. And we have truth on our side. And I think that all I have to do to feel optimistic is read the Times, the comments on any New York Times piece on this, when the, com when the Times allows comments, mm. um, to see that there is just a pent-up avalanche of common sense out there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think all it's going to take is for people to feel like they can share their opinions. And, you know, someone said if you just took a public vote, it would all be over. So I think we have truth on our side, and that makes me feel optimistic. Yeah. Um, what, what makes me feel pessimistic, ironically enough, you uh, said in the last 15 minutes of our podcast together, where you kind of, you, you were talking, and then you went into this kind of, and they're infiltrated everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in the hospitals. It's in the schools. It's in the institutions. It's a mentality that has just kind of gone everywhere. And it's, it was a shocking kind of a monologue that you came out with, and I realized I've never seen an equivalence. When whenever we talk about, you know, false memory syndrome, there's no equivalence to this. So that's my sense of pessimism. Yes, Lisa's right. The optimism is we're, we, know our, we know our stuff. We, we know this subject. We, us, all of us, and um, we can just keep saying speaking the truth, and I think people are getting braver. I think people are getting notably braver. We weren't pathologically secretive about this conference. We, we were very clear that we were having it. We were forthright. We, we said what we were going to do. And Killarney isn't big, and yet we, we managed so far, so long as nothing happens tomorrow, we've managed to, <laughs> to have it. You know? Yeah. So that gives me confidence. I don't think we could have had this conference in other years. Yeah. I think 2023 was as soon as we could have had it. Yeah. And with that, we would like to thank you all for joining us at our live recording. Yeah. Live-ish recording. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.